0: You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Oh, it's not good. Get in there, Maverick. It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad... Bad plan. Alright, you know that music means that Lou is not here to defend you. You are stuck with me and me alone. <laughs> and I am here to tell you that, you know, you are still lying when you leave stuff out. And you're probably wondering to yourself, huh? Well, if you read the title, excuse me, if you read the title, you know what I'm talking about. We are going to discuss mere Christianity. And I know what you're thinking. You're going, huh? Allow me to explain myself. All right. What is mere Christianity? It is a book. It is born out of the radio broadcasts of one c.s lewis a mr clive staples himself he had a radio broadcast broadcast in 1942 entitled the case for christianity he followed that up in 1943 with christian behavior and that culminated in 1944's beyond personality now those three things were kind of transcribed and later put together So, excuse me, in 1952 in a book entitled Mere Christianity, which, by the way, is not an original title. It's a title borrowed from the works of G.K. Chesterton, who, just short little aside, I'm not a fan of. I've tried to read some Chesterton. He just drives me insane. I can't stand it. So, that's neither here nor there and has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Anyway, it's an excellent, and I say it, Mere Christianity, the book, is an excellent Christian introductory Uh, resource. There we go. There's the word I want, resource. I have it on my shelf. I was blessed by reading it. You will be blessed by reading it. The problem is you have to stop there. An introductory resource, an initial foray into Christian doctrine and understanding is all that it was meant to be and all that it should be. The goal of the book was to ignore denominational divides within Christianity. So we're not going to have the Presbyterians and the Baptists fighting each other. We're not going to have the Lutherans and the Methodists arguing over anything. The problem was that it even uh, blurred the divide between Protestants and Catholics, which, again, is part of the appeal. The idea was, when you say the word Christian, what do you imagine, and what would be the bare necessities of doctrine that we would operate under? As an introduction into Christianity in the public square, I have no problem with this. My contention is with the carrying forward into the modern apologetic movement The idea behind this is that you have a a limited defense of the faith, meaning the fewer cardinal or necessary doctrines, the easier it is to defend the faith. You can see this if you want to look at a modern apologetic system. Guys like William Lane Craig ascribe to this. A godly man, functioning in the kingdom. I have some issues with his theology, but that's neither here nor there. He's not a heretic, but I do think that this idea that he's trying to defend is a problem. If you'd like to see what it looks like on the other end of the spectrum, from the scholarly of William Lane Craig to the popular, look at a guy like Andy Stanley and his unhitching of the Old Testament, the lack of defense and understanding of the Old Testament gives you a more popular side of the view. This, this mere Christian movie, I th- move, movement, I think, anchors itself in what we would call the modern megachurch, the idea of easy believeism, doctrinal relativism, a lowly, homiletical and exegetical concern, meaning the sermon is much more applicable rather than exegetical. Rather than dealing with the truths of Scripture, it wants to deal with the application to your life. It's what I would call hyper-applicationism. Which is kind of funny that I'm railing against this, considering we are practical theology ministries. We want to make theology practical, but in order to make it practical, we first have to understand it. And I think this is why this conversation is going to be worth having, and this look is going to be worth having. What separated C.S. Lewis from in 1940, or the, in the 1940s, and the book in the 1950s from us today is beyond just 80 plus years and 60 years, depending on your your starting point. It's the world to which it was given. Lewis talking to a World War II, almost 80 years ago, England, he was talking to a Christian culture, a world that understood, even if it did not agree or uh, believe, a world that understood the things of God from a cultural perspective. Uh, God was still the center of the worldview, even for the atheist, in that the universe was thought to have a beginning, have a purpose. Human history was thought, was thought to have a goal. Those things are gone now. The modern worldview of Lewis has been replaced by the post- and in some instances the post-post-modern worldview of moral relativism, epistemological uncertainty, and philosophical relativism as well. Mere Christianity served a great purpose in cataloging the bare necessities of the faith in the 40s and 50s. Those bare necessities cannot be assumed today, which is why trying to follow the mere Christian model is going to lead to problems. It's going to, by definition, we cannot minimize our distinctions because our distinctions are based on our understandings of the cardinals, if that makes any sense. And I don't mean the red guys and the little beanies that elect the pope. I mean the cardinal doctrines of the faith. So in other words, my view of baptism... As a Baptist, you can figure out what it is. My view of baptism is shaped by my understanding of what soteriology is, how that functions, and what sanctification looks like. This is why the Roman Catholic and I can't really have true <coughs> excuse me Christian communion because... I, dis- I differentiate between justification and sanctification. I don't minimize either, but I differentiate. The Catholic merges justification and sanctification, thereby changing soteriology. What is the gospel, which is of the cardinal doctrines? That's borne out in how I live. How I function in church, how I think church should function, how I think the believer ought to function, what I think baptism is, what I think the sacraments of the church are. All of these secondary things are born out of my understanding of a primary doctrine. So when I am defending, I need to be able to go back and ground my doctrine In the totality of God's word, mere Christianity rejects that and borrows, I think, too much from the world in order to make its point and give itself an easier defense. I think it actually gives itself a harder defense. Now, why am I calling this a problem? I think we can justify this by going back and looking at scripture. And my first starting point is the teachings of Christ. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is my starting point. In order to understand Anything that Jesus has just said in that passage, what do you first have to understand? Um, What's a law? What does he mean by the law? What's a prophet? Who's a prophet? Where's a prophet? What's a prophet? All of these things. I have to have a connection to the Old Testament. To sit there and say, I need to defend the resurrection, and then the resurrection proves everything else, fails to explain what the resurrection is and why it matters. It's a historical... um, sleight of hand, in order to understand Jesus' commands to repent, his offering of himself, my need in sin for a savior, I need to have grounding in the historical doctrines of Christianity, and those are found in the New Testament. That's part of the reason why I'm doing this Heretics podcast, is because if you go back and listen, especially to the... uh, to when we are dealing with the church history stuff, we're dealing in what we call historical theology. We are grounding our current understandings and corrections in problems of the past. We're learning from it. You do the same thing in scripture. If you do not have the Old Testament, the New Testament is a book without a beginning. And if you do not have the New Testament, the Old Testament is a book without an end. They are a unified doctrinal statement. Dependent upon one another. I mean, Matthew starts out explaining a genealogy. If you don't have any understanding of the Old Testament, who are these people? You can't sit there and explain Jesus' understandings of marriage without understanding Genesis 2 and Genesis 19 and the Levitical Code. You can't understand Jesus' commands to repent and believe if you do not understand the Levitical understandings of sin, the definitions of wah. Well, of iniquity from God going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, his creation of humanity. You can't understand any of this place without understanding Genesis 1 and 2. You can't understand the totality of salvation without seeing Moses' speeches in Deuteronomy. You can't understand any of this without a grounding that makes sense in the historical work of God for his people. You have to have it. But that's not all. To say I'm going to deal with just a mere Christian view and I'm only going to defend the basics of Christianity is I think to fail to count the cost of what you're dealing with in Christianity. What do I mean by counting the cost? Luke 14. Large cow- large crowds were going along with him. The him is Jesus, by the way, and he turned and said to them, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Now, time out. Did Jesus tell you that in order to be his disciple, you have to hate your family? No, that's not his point. And the proof of that is in the next verses. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. There's Jesus' point right there. Before you build something, you make sure you have the money first. Before you follow someone, you make sure you understand what they're asking, him, what they're asking of you and what it may cost you. To say I'm not going to defend the Old Testament history, to say I'm not going to defend the Old Testament doctrine, to say I'm not going to defend the Old Testament's views, I'm just going to defend the resurrection and I'm going to leave everything else off to the side, is to not count the cost of what I am called to walk in, who I am called to trust and what I am called to believe. It's to try to find the loophole, you know, now, I don't want to be on the narrow road, I don't want to be on the broad road, but maybe, maybe there's like a middle highway somewhere that's, you know, just like a few weeds, and I can, um, can kind of bushwhack my way through that with a machete, no. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while he is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And that's not just material things. This, this following of Christ has cost people families. It has cost people jobs. It has cost people relationships. And Jesus looks at you and said, Yep, I warned you. To not be willing to dive in and follow the totality of scripture, I think, is an unwillingness to count the cost up front or to negotiate. Never forget this. The terms that God gives the rebel sinner are simple. Surrender. There's no counteroffer. There's no negotiation. There's no exchange of prisoners. Surrender. That's what God demands. Now, I think the next thing, though, the reason why I call this view, viewpoint a problem is it misuses the purpose of the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't just this placeholder that gives us a cute little quaint history that maybe gets us to a Messiah one day. It actually has a function. Isaiah 56, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which. Goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Now, this is a, an example I've used on Sunday mornings plenty of times. Parents, you just love to tell your children things because you love the sound of your own voice, right? I mean, that's why you, you give them instruction and, and build them up in life because you just like to hear yourself talk. Of course not. That would be dumb. Don't do dumb things. That's the rule. Likewise, if God has gone to the trouble of working with these people all of this time to teach them, to instruct them, to have it recorded so that we would have a witness of it, don't you think he did it for a reason beyond just what he was doing with those people? Yes. Never forget, Scripture's witness is not for the people that are starring in it. It is for those of us who are reading it. The Old Testament has a purpose. It points somewhere, namely, to God's work. What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me because you do so that you may have life, and I do not receive glory from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, I think Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan nails this because that's one of the problems Christian faces on his journey to the celestial city. It's the accusations of Moses running him off the road. It's an undermining. The law has this function. It's not a means of salvation. It's a means of condemnation for people. It demonstrates God's holiness and our unrighteousness, therefore our need. Um, That's why Jesus points to Luke 24, "...was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures." See, The point of the Old Testament was to accomplish God's will. What was God's will? To point to a Messiah who would redeem God's people. Therefore, it accomplishes this. To unhitch or ignore the Old Testament because we don't want to have to deal with the history is to say, no, God, we know you spent all this time to give us this background and understanding so that it would be for our good and for your glory, but we're okay without it. As a matter of fact, we think we're better off without it. Dude, See, we don't phrase it that way, so we don't think of it like that. Therefore, we think what we're doing is okay. No, we defend the whole council. We use the law to confront sin, to point it out, so that there will be a need for a Savior, so that the appearance of the Savior makes sense. This is the key in all of this. See, what what we call this is, or maybe what I call this, is Scarlet Thread Theology. It goes back to the uh, W.A. Chriswell writing the Scarlet Thread, you know, where you can find the work of Christ throughout the, the Scripture going all the way back into the Old Testament. Firm believer of this. And it's, it's a necessary point to make that we, we need to understand it. Excuse me. Uh, Dry throat, always, terminally, apparently. We need to understand it because when we don't understand it, we pick and choose and we start to dismantle our Bible in ways that we are just frankly not allowed to do it with. Instead, we have to see things as a total building. We mentioned this with hermeneutics. We couple of weeks ago, we read what is now in light of what has come before, not the other way around. That's a problem. So you don't start with revelation and go backwards. This is why I'm not a dispensationalist. I love you all, my dispensational brethren, brethren, sister, and however that works. But... I'm not a dispensationalist because I read Revelation in light of what's come before it, not what comes after it. You need to do that with your apologetics as well. Be willing to defend the histories of the Old Testament because, one, they're accurate, God has promised. Two, they point us to something, and if we are unwilling or unable to defend the history of God's working, we are going to be unable to ground Jesus' work in history. We leave the... We leave the atheist and the unbeliever open to the defense of the lunatic or the misunderstanding or the Bauer hypothesis. You can go read up on that all you want. It's such fun. We, we leave ourselves open to all of this because we have not grounded our understandings in history. So how do we do that My Christian friends, we understand salvation from the beginning. Go all the way back. The grace of God was promised and delivered all the way in Genesis 3. I mean, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, what should have happened? They they should have died. Why didn't they? God's grace. What does God promise? He promises a Savior right there in chapter 3, verse 15. Beyond that, he demonstrates the work of the Savior because he covers their nakedness, a symbol of their sin, with an animal. Well, an animal skin. It's not like they walked around with a badger covering their their, their uh, unmentionables. I guess would be the play way of putting it. That would now you've got that image in the back of your brain, like Adam and Eve holding squirrels over themselves. Anyway, now used an animal fur. How do you get animal fur? The animals don't like voluntarily hand that over, do they? No, you have to take it from them. Which means, what did God do? God sacrificed an animal, a death in their place, and then covered their sin with that animal. This is a precursor of the sacrificial sin, why Hebel's uh, sacrifice was good and Cain's was not. This is a precursor of the Levitical standard, an explanation of the Passover, an explanation ultimately of the work of Christ this goes all the way back to the beginning. Now you can also see it in the patriarchs. When was Abraham saved? He was saved in Genesis 15, 6, right? And he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now I would argue Abraham was saved in Genesis 12 when God called him, but here's your confirmation of it. And if you don't like the way I'm phrasing it, well, have a blast and go read Romans 4. It'll do you good. Because that's the crux of Paul's entire argument. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does it say? And he quotes Genesis 15.6. Now to the one who works, his wages credit is a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who is justified the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Then he goes on, verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How is it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And there's your answer. Because circumcision comes in Genesis 17. Abraham is declared justified in Genesis 15. See, this is why Abraham is the father of the faithful. He's not just the father of Israel in circumcision. He's the father of the believer by faith. It's a one faith movement. One simple setup. Excuse me. That's your first thing. One salvation from beginning to end. Second... One understanding of the law. Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, has, Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law was never meant as a means of salvation. That's Pharisaical theology, probably codified and and solidified in the the, uh, ensuing couple thousand years. But the Pharisees believed this. This is not the point of the law from the beginning, which is why you can go all the way back into places like Deuteronomy and see Moses urging the people to believe and trust, to circumcise their hearts, which is what the prophets would pick up on. You can see the singularity of salvation because the law was not meant to save. Uh, Galatians 3 makes the same point. Promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, which is Christ. What I am saying is this. I just love when Paul says that for you. He's like, okay, you're not understanding this here. Here it is. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. If the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Meaning, When was Abraham promised that he would have a multiplicity of descendants? Genesis 15. Abraham believes in that. Therefore, the promise is not based on their law-keeping or their circumcision from Genesis 17. It's based on the promise of God. Congratulations, believer. You are the fruit of that. So why the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. See? This is what it does. Fast forward a little farther in Galatians 3. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. See, I can't be justified by faith if I don't actually understand that I have to have a faith to be justified and I don't need to know, and I need to know, what, in order to know what a faith is, I need to know what a faithlessness is. I need to know the folly and emptiness of my current way of life. This is what the law demonstrates. This is what the law shows to me. God's holiness, my inability. Then it provides me with my righteousness because it shows me how I live and walk before him because I am now of faith and he has transformed me. That's a different discussion for another day. So, notice that I can prove this though from the Old Testament. As you're going, are you sure? Yes, yes I am sure. We already mentioned when were Adam and Eve saved? Before or after the covenant and the law was given? Before. God saved them right there in the garden, demonstrated by the giving of the animal and the promise of the Messiah. When was Abraham redeemed? Before the covenant was given. When was Israel redeemed? See, catch this. What's the what's Israel's redemption? God's claiming of them and bringing them out of Egypt. Is that before or after the law and the covenant are given in Exodus? It's before. When is the Christian saved? <laughs> before the covenant symbols are given. What's your covenant? What's your new covenant symbol? It's baptism. What's your new covenant calling? It's sanctification. Do you have to be baptized and clean up your life so that God will save you? No. No, you don't. You are baptized and clean up your life because God has saved you. The law doesn't save. The law condemns. Christ saves. We don't understand that unless we rightly understand and apply the Old Testament to our lives, unless we rightly see all of Scripture. We have to see this as a totality. Now, finally, our last correction. So, understanding salvation, understanding the law, understanding the pattern of the apostles. What did Paul leave out? Acts twenty, behold, I know that all of you that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So Paul's leaving and he's not coming back. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now keep in mind when Paul is saying this, I don't we probably have Matthew floating around at this point. We have Paul's letters and um maybe some of Peter's letters. We have James. But we don't have a lot of New Testament. Paul's primarily talking about proclaiming the Old Testament. Which means Paul could preach the gospel of Christ from the Old Testament. We should be able to as well. So what's Paul's warning now based on all that? "...be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples out to them." Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears, and now I commend to you to I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. There's your Old Testament, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We can't settle at a mere Christian; we have to settle for a robust Christianity. A full Christianity, grounded and built upon the Word of God revealed from Genesis to Revelation. Now, will that require work? Yes. Will that require discipline? Yes. Will that require us to connect dots and to maybe stand apart from the world and culture around us? Yes. Yes, it will. Christian, the warning and the command to you is, Do it. It's good for you. It is necessary. We have to be willing to walk this road. So, while my mere Christian brothers and sisters are not heretics as in they're out of the kingdom, they are still my brothers and sisters in Christ, they are engaged, I think, in an epistemological walk that undermines the gospel they seek to defend. And if you are following it, Stop it. Stop it now. Be grounded and girded by all of Scripture. Be comforted and be willing to stand apart from the world by standing with God as revealed in His Word. So, what have we learned today, children? We have to draw biblical lines, not cultural ones. We cannot pick and choose what parts of God we will defend. We defend all because He is all. And we must study the whole counsel of God. Sound good? I thought it did. Now, I'm already seeing some of you are finding new download locations. That is awesome. Again, if you are following us on Podbean and you are sick of it, we are on Google Podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts. We've been on iTunes. We should be on Apple Podcasts. I'm still checking to make sure. We are on Spotify, which I saw some of you have downloaded on that. Nice, nice of you to use that. Appreciate it. Um, iHeartRadio and Pandora. Anywhere you can get podcasts, we are on all of them. Like us, Find us, give us good reviews, recommend us to your friends. We're trying to do useful things, and if you think we're being less than useful, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Tell me what we can fix. We'll address it, talk about it, and fix it as best we can. Uh, Practicaltheologyministries.com is the website. You can find newsletters, some other blog resources, some fun little things. Again, you can send us feedback, all that good stuff. Um, Find us on Facebook and Twitter from there as well. All right, that covers everything. Hopefully we'll be back again this week with Lou, although we don't know. He's getting some lovely things done with work and all that other good stuff. But if not, I will see you again next week. Until then, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.